This is WKSU News. I'm Kabir Bhatia. An online auction wrapping up Saturday night provides a window into Cleveland's role in music history. John Gorman ran WMMS Radio in the 1970s and 80s. The station was so prominent back then, record companies routinely sent gold records and promotional items as a thank you for breaking new acts. Now Gorman says it's time to let others enjoy his collection, and he hopes the pieces either stay in the area or go to expatriates who remember the station known as the Buzzard. I was told people have traveled overseas. They've seen WMMS gold and platinum albums hanging up in restaurants, you know, in Abu Dhabi. I really don't want to see these end up in a restaurant or club somewhere overseas. I've actually had them in three states, uh, probably 10 homes, (laughs) three or four different offices. And uh, I realized at this time, I'm I'm not getting younger. I enjoyed them. I've treasured everything that I have. Uh, but I started thinking of, you know, especially, uh, you know, you, you go on social media and people are talking about the past and nostalgia and and uh, especially, uh, you know, in this market, Cleveland has such a rich rock history. And, uh, you know, my wife suggested one day, you know, you see these things every day. You've been seeing them for years. And why not give somebody else a chance to have them in the 70s and 80s and then even into the 90s? You know, Cleveland was really a breakout market for new music. And so I got an awful lot of awards. And usually what they would do is, I mean, there's, there's, you know, they, they would make one for WMMS, but sometimes they'd make one, per, you know, for you personally. Or sometimes they'd give you two MMSs when they give, give, you, give you two with the same name, you, you know, your own name to hang on the wall. So, I mean, you know, in the heyday of WMMS, believe me, every square inch of the wall was filled with, with these awards. One of the pieces is an award for Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell LP, and I imagine you held on to that all this time because it has numerous connections to Northeast Ohio. Well, as Steve Popovich, who owned Cleveland International Records, you know, based in Cleveland, uh, signed Meatloaf, and uh, he, signed a, he signed an act that every other label turned down. Uh, nobody, could, no, nobody understood the, uh, you know, the, the Meatloaf album, uh, they couldn't understand the concept. They didn't think it would be a hit, even though Todd Rundgren produced it. And uh, Steve was really, you know, he, he took a chance, put that out. Well, we listened to it. Uh, actually, before it came out, Steve played it. said, this is fantastic. There's nothing else in the world that so- sounds like this. So we started playing and immediately got the response. And uh, a few weeks later, a few other stations picked up. And, uh, you know, then it became a... Uh, you know, a national hit, then it became an international hit. And, uh, you know, that, that's pretty much what Cleveland was back there. We were sort of a barometer for rock and roll. That if it's happening in, in Cleveland, there's a chance this is a, an act you should be playing on the air. And another time your station was a barometer was with Fleetwood Mac with the Buckingham Knicks album, which was actually released by Buckingham and Knicks before they joined Fleetwood Mac. But how did you know back then to hold on to these promotional items from this unknown duo with an album that hadn't even done well? No, except in Cleveland. I mean, Buckingham, it was, it was uh, Birmingham, Alabama and Cleveland, Ohio were the two markets that uh, the Buckingham Knicks album did very well at. And uh, we started playing. the. It was just something, an album that came into the mail. And, and we realized, you know, when I started with WMRS, Danny Sanders and, my, and, and, and myself, well, we were putting together the, the uh, you know, what became the buzzard. Uh, 
we realized we had to be important for the rest of the world. We had to find something that made us unique that people took, you know, would, would look at Cleveland and look at our radio stations being something separate. Because in 1973, Cleveland was the butt of so many jokes, you know, from Johnny Carson laughing and everything else. I mean, you said, well, we, we've, let, what positive thing can we do with Cleveland? We said, let's, let's start breaking new music. So we started, you know, looking at music magazines. We weren't looking by the trades. We weren't being promoted by the, by the labels that much. But we started looking at New, new Musical Express and Melody Maker out of England. And uh, we were finding our own music. And, you know, seeing the Susie Quattro, she's huge. And, you know, there's Quattromania happening in England. We started playing her here. Uh, and so many of the other artists were the same way. And, you know, Buckingham Nicks was one of those albums that came by our desk. We listened to it and said, this is pretty good. And we played it. It started getting reaction. It started selling copies in town. And uh, there was a club at the time called The Smiling Dog. Uh, they were around before the Agora. Well, around the same time as the Agora. But The Smiling Dog was really the cutting edge uh, club back then. And uh, Roger Bono on the club booked Buckingham next. But the problem was they started a tour. They actually played Birmingham. But then Polygore, the label, cut off the tourist support because nobody else in the country was playing it. And that was one of those cases where, you know, it, it was a, it was a best kept secret in, in Cleveland. And when the Fleetwood Mac white album, the first one that had Buckingham and Nick's joining the band, when that came out, it was like, Hey, those are the same people we used to play way, way back when. So we really jumped on that, 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 that Fleetwood Mac album and everybody else was kind of ignoring it when it first came out because it didn't sound like the old blues band, British, Fleetwood Mac. It was a completely new, different sound. But it took off very, you know, rapidly in this town. Now, gold and platinum albums, those are pretty durable physically, but you saved a lot of posters, which are paper. They're not that durable. Tell me about the one for the Bruce Springsteen 10th anniversary concert at the Agora from 1978. Cleveland was originally not planned to be part of that, that Springsteen tour in 1978. And uh, once again, Steve Popovich, the same person at Cleveland International and, and, and Meatloaf, uh, he was a, a heavyweight at Columbia Records at the time. And uh, we called him and said, wait a second, you know, we, this is a big mark for Springsteen, born to run broke out of here. And he said, well, that's the reason why Columbia doesn't want to do a, a, a Springsteen concert, because you guys are still playing Springsteen. The rest of the country stopped playing him because there was that long delay because he was in that lawsuit. So it delayed uh, the darkness album for, for a pretty long length of time. But C. Popovich fought very hard to uh, make Cleveland the uh, city that would do the Midwest feed of the uh, Springsteen concert. And so that was really something, that was a battle. And thanks to Steve Popovich and also Columbia Records having a uh, change of mind by uh, having the concert here. And, you know, that ended up being, I think, one of the most bootleg concerts in history until it finally came out legally. The list of items includes such Northeast Ohio-specific pieces as a poster for Queen's 1978 appearance at the Richfield Coliseum, a vintage Beach Boys frisbee from the old Cleveland Stadium, and a special hard hat from the groundbreaking ceremony for the Rock Hall in 1993. I'm Kabir Bhatia, WKSU.